0: Not only was I having to sing and play and do all this, I was also having to direct the band to finish songs much earlier to try and make it fit into a nice round hour because we frankly weren't used to doing an hour, we're used to doing two and a half hours.
1: With the release of Pink Floyd The Later Years, a massive new box set from one of the greatest bands the world has ever seen, comes your chance to hear the real story of this legendary time in a whole new light.
0: I'm David Gilmore and welcome to The Lost Art of Conversation. A Pink Floyd podcast.
1: Throughout this series, we'll delve into four key elements of Pink Floyd's creative output from 1987 to today.
0: We wanted to go back, change this and change that. I think it's a
1: greatly improved album. The Lost Art of Conversation, a Pink Floyd podcast.
0: Where do we do this gig in Rennes? Out on the water, of course, facing <laughs> St Mark's Square. What do we play on? Well, there's um, a floating barge platform in Norway. And we can tow it from Norway to Venice.
1: This is the final episode, the unreleased material in the new box set. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Lost Art of Conversation, a Pink Floyd podcast, and I'm here with David Gilmour, he of Pink Floyd. Hello, David. Hi, Matt. (laughs) So we've covered the work reflecting this new later years box set. We've looked at the studio, we've looked at live, we've looked at the artwork and the visual language surrounding the band. But there's a whole host of unreleased material in Mm. this set. There's hours and hours of Mm. visuals and recordings and stuff. Some of the things that are documented are pretty pretty important little moments, kind of, you know, moments that represent a lot to people. Um, The first one we can look at is is the gig you did in Venice in 1989. A show that has passed into legend. Um, how were you first invited? Were you invited even to play? How did it work? Not a lot of people play gigs in Venice Is for it, obvious reasons. You're asking a lot. <laughs> I am. Um, I mean, 1989, 1999, that's 30 years ago.
0: Okay. I can't remember how it came about, or, but I do remember, you know, the word coming up gig in Venice, do a gig in Venice, do a gig in Venice. And you're going to go, absolutely, of course. We'd, we We want to do a gig in Venice. Where do we do this gig in Venice? Well, out on the water. Of course, facing St Mark's Square. Yeah, makes sense. What do we do, what do we play on? (laughs) Uh, Well, there's um, there's a, a floating barge platform in Norway that is 150 yards long and 100 yards wide and we can tow it from Norway to Venice. That's through the North Sea, down the channel, across the Bay of Biscay, through the Straits of Gibraltar, down past all of Spain, France and Italy and up the other side of Italy, and that is what happened. Um, An enormous, enormous floating platform was tugged from Norway for us to do our show on. Fantastic.
1: How long did it take? Well,
0: I've no idea, but I imagine weeks. Mm. How long would you think, a month, maybe more? I I, I honestly don't know about it. I don't have a picture of it. I've never seen a picture of it. No-one ever took one that I know, but, I mean, how are you going to do this sort of gig? I mean, I suppose you could get lots of small ones and tie them together, but then they're doing what they do, you know, one yeah. going up and one going down. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember quite how all that worked, but it was a fantastic occasion. The I think the the whole of the city of Venice had promised us... Everything, Lose food, you know, for the massive amount of people who were going to be there and I don't think they even quite understood how many people were actually going to turn up to this thing and it, it was enormous and it seemed as if the entire town council disappeared on holiday somewhere else for that weekend because I think an awful lot of the audience couldn't find food, couldn't find public toilets... There were logistical nightmares to do with it. There was supposedly some damage to one or two buildings, which they blamed on our fireworks, but obviously wasn't, because they were out over the water somewhere. There was um, a little bit of bother about the whole event. I suppose some of the the, the local people who, who live and work in Venice were over fond of us afterwards. But again, you know, they did uh, let me go back and play in St Mark's Square in 2006 on my on my solo tour. So um, um, people's memories are luckily short. <laughs> you weren't banned from Venice, mm-hmm. and um, and of course it was a live uh, broadcast to the world. It wasn't even recorded in multitrack, but. Whoever, and I can't remember who it was, did the live broadcast mix. It was very, very good. It's a good mix. It sounds fine. And I just remember having a a, a digital timer clock on my gear somewhere that the cameras couldn't see, timing down from the beginning of the show to the end of the show. And I had a list of timings for each song, when each song had to end. Um, So not only was I having to sing and play and do all this, I was also having to direct the band to finish songs much earlier. would cut out bits of songs and stuff to try and make it fit into a nice round hour, because we frankly weren't used to doing an hour, we're used to doing two and a half hours. So it was very, very tricky doing it, so trying to concentrate on singing and playing while keeping an eye on a clock, saying, am I going on too long on this solo? Well, obviously, yes, because I always do, but uh, trying to... That's, that's my a sort of abiding memory of it, was was looking at this little red digital clock ticking down, thinking, oh, I've got to get this one finished, got to get this one finished and start the next one.
2: Grazie, thank you very much indeed. Buonasera.
0: Right, we're just going to get on with some music, OK? Have a good time, we're going to. Take it away, gal.
1: Sound engineer Andy Jackson.
3: I do remember when the show had finished, because it ends with fireworks. I went out, that was right, right at the back of the stage where the TV thing was, and uh, we climbed up on top of, in my memory, climbed up on top of a porter cabin or something to watch the fireworks, something like that. God knows how we got there. And I was sitting next to David, and we were watching these fireworks, and he turned to me and said, This is the first time I've ever played support to a fireworks show. It really was quite unbelievable. The climax of a normal fireworks show was how it started and then it ramped up from there and you were just in complete sensory overload. It was extraordinary. But it was, yeah, it was a weird event. It was on a floating pontoon. and The uh, gondoliers had tried to extort money out of Steve who told him to go away and they said, we will sound our horns through the show. And he said, good luck. (laughs)
0: And you can hear in the gaps.
2: <laughs> Parp.
1: Another big show, another important show that's featured in the set was your performance at Nebworth in 1990. Yeah. Another film that's been unseen for decades. Yes. Yeah. Quite a lineup. That yeah. night, yeah, a lot of a lot of very good people on the show. Yeah, uh, what can you remember from the? I
0: remember beforehand them asking us to do it, and I can remember saying to Steve, "Tell them that we want an hour of darkness." That was our only prerequisite, but uh, it's in the summer, so darkness happens quite late. So uh, it, I think, it meant that we closed the show, um, which some people slightly grumpy about, but um, we got our hour of darkness and half an hour of rain and God knows what else. Anyway, it was um, it was wet, but uh, it went really well. It was a really good show. There was huge wind, slashing rain coming straight onto us. I must have been using a, a radio mic on the guitar at that time because it would have been too dangerous uh, to have been in all that wet with all that electronic equipment. <laughs>
4: Pope Prior to the Nebworth concert, there had been a great debate as to who would finish the show, who would close the, the gig. Paul McCartney, Pink Floyd. Well, in the end, Pink Floyd won out, and Pink Floyd wanted to close the show at sunset. One of my better memories was the two managers of Paul McCartney and of Pink Floyd arguing by the side of the stage at the closing moments of Paul McCartney's set, which was running over, probably quite deliberately, and of Steve O'Rourke saying, get Paul McCartney off the stage right now, and Richard Ogden, who was Paul McCartney's manager, saying, well, you go and drag him off then. <laughs> they were nearly at blows with each other. But much more dramatic was the fact that Pink Floyd had insisted on going on last, which was the prime spot at networth and as they went on, which was just at sunset, the most horrendous squall grew, blew up. I mean, this was a, a storm of unprecedented proportions. It was extraordinary. I mean, if you look at the footage, David Gilmour is virtually being blown off the stage. His hair's all over the place, there's rain. I mean, it, it was just extraordinary. It was like a tempest suddenly arrived. Uh, and it somehow added to the drama of the day. You know, it really did. And I'm sure it's most unpleasant for the participants in the band, but actually for everybody in the crowd, it was pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah,
0: a great show. I remember thinking, you know, you can hide from this rain or you've got to embrace it. And There's only one thing to do is get out there and enjoy it. We had... Sam Brown and her mum, Vicky Brown, on the tour. And, of course, we had Claire Torrey, the original singer of Great Gig in the Sky, singing with us that night. It's fantastic to hear her doing it, kind of just like on the record, because we've had so many different versions of it over the years, with different people singing it in different arrangements. All of them really good. But it was very nice to have Claire come on board us for that one.
1: But as well as the legendary concerts in Venice in 1989 and Nebworth in 1990, what other treats can be found in the later years
4: box set? Here's Aubrey Powell again. So part of the package, there's um, a couple of singles that have been released um, with it. Uh, one is Arnold Lane. And, you know, it, we wanted a, a fresh image on that, you know, not, not something from the past. And so I, I very simply created an image which was washing on a washing line you know when you listen to the lyrics of Arnold Lane which is about a deviant who steals women's underwear from back gardens you know I wanted something that was very simple and didn't dwell on that subject but just had that kind of essence to it and it's just a graphic picture it's nothing complicated we made use of the bowler hat also within the graphic and the bowler hat of course comes from the video that was released way back of Arnold Lane The seven-inch single I enjoyed doing most was actually Lost For Words, because if you listen to the lyrics of Lost For Words, it's really about a man who's contemplating on his own anger and rage within a set of circumstances. I don't want to say it's about Pink Floyd, but it might be. Um, And I just thought, at the time, a man in a cornfield. I love cornfields when they're in it's just amazing and above him an arch of two hands arm wrestling so it's a symbol of this inner turmoil and I showed it to David and he said that says it all so I felt and 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 Polly had written the lyrics Polly Sampson had done the lyrics and I think um, she must have approved the image too, because um, it's there in the, uh, in the package.
2: I was spending my time in doldrums I was caught in a cauldron of hate I felt persecuted and paralysed I thought that everything else would just wait While you are wasting your time on your enemies, engulfed in a fever of spite, beyond your tunnel vision, reality fades like shadows into the night. To martyr yourself to caution is not gonna help. there no safety numbers When the right one walks out of the door
4: The halcyon days of album covers were really 1967 to 1982, and the advent of the CD, which went, you know, from an album cover this big to this big, uh, sort of was the death knoll really, but vinyl has seen a resurgence. Vinyl has never gone away, but it's... Nevertheless, it's a joy to me to have vinyl come back in the way that it has done with Pink Floyd on this, this later years project. There is a spin-off from the box set, which is called The Later Years Pink Floyd uh, 1987 to 2019, which is a black-and-white photograph that I took in 1975 in Iceland. And when you look at it, it's it's two guys reading a map. When we had to create the, the vinyl package for this, I went to see David and Nick, and I showed them this photograph, and what's appropriate about it is that in 1987, when Roger Waters had split from the band and they went on to make Momentary Lapse of Reason, it was just David and Nick left, and how... Worrying was that, that they had to continue on with Pink Floyd and come up with the goods. I mean, it was an anxious time. And this symbol of two guys looking at a blank map in a kind of barren landscape full of steam somehow conjures up the feelings of the time. And when I showed it to David and Nick, they both went, yeah, great, love it, let's do that, perfect. And I'm really pleased because I'd taken the photograph with the intention of originally showing it to Pink Floyd for an idea, either for Wish You Were Here or Animals, you know. And one so I never felt it was appropriate, actually, so we never did. So it lay in a box until about six months ago when I pulled them out of an archive and I thought, you know what, I've always loved this picture and I think it's, it's the right thing to do. And they both agreed, it was, it's fabulous, you know, wonderful. One of the most interesting aspects of this package is the delicate sound of thunder film. It was made way back in 1989, and it's probably the only film ever made of a Pink Floyd concert in its entirety, on 35mm film. I was told by the Pink Floyd archivist Lana Topham that all these film cans existed in their entirety, all 300 of them, all 35mm, all pristine but had never been touched since 89. So I took the cans of film, and I had them up to 4K and digitized, and the quality astounded me. Absolutely was mind-blowing. The only problem is, in 89, when people used to make live films, and Wayne Isham directed this, there wasn't the sophistication in terms of how to get cameras to coordinate together. And consequently, the film was all over the place. So I spent 14 months completely re-editing the film. And the end result, which I've screened in the cinema, is phenomenal. It's absolutely beautiful. Every grain, every wonderful drop of 35mm film is there. The colours, the saturation. I think some of the moments in the film are things like sorrow. The way that David plays that in the guitar solo, all comfortably numb. I mean, to me, when I watched that film... In the late 80s, David, Nick and Rick were absolutely at the peak of their musicianship. I mean, the playing is superb. David's voice is fantastic. He plays effortlessly. It, he's so fluid with the guitar. And Nick is drumming with all the energy you can possibly imagine. I mean, it, it's it's masterful to see Pink Floyd in, in their element. Everything about it is just it's how Pink Floyd should be.
1: The final Pink Floyd album, The Endless River from 2014, is also represented in the box set. As well as footage from the album launch and a never-before-released film by Ian Eames, which provides visuals for the whole record, you can also hear the interview that David Gilmour and Nick Mason did on the Astoria studio boat just before the album came out. It's interesting as it's the final time that Nick and David would ever do an interview about a new Pink Floyd album. Here's Nick.
3: This album was going to be half of the Division Bell, and the Division Bell would be consist of, uh, funnily enough, almost a throwback to Uma Guma or something like that, where uh, half of it would be studio, sort of full-on studio songs, more or less. Then there'd be this ambient album that would be really something completely, completely different. But we ran out of time. How does one run, run out of time? We, I think we just ran out of attention almost and into how it would be how it would work really and how to make something really good out of it and in fact the process of putting this together has taken a long time this i mean it's probably been a two-year project plus so i think i can absolutely see why we weren't able to do it at the time
1: what would rick have made at the album and the you know there's going to be a certain amount of hoo-ha around the release both those things musically and then in terms
3: i think rick would be thrilled actually i think perhaps this this record is is rather a good way of recognizing a lot of what he does no i think i think he'd be really pleased i mean I, i think if he had a criticism it would be the usual one for any musician in a band which is could you just nudge the keyboards up a little bit
1: Did you go back and listen to a lot of the previous records when you were putting this one together to kind of form a...
3: Absolutely not. Never listen to the old records. Inevitably, sometimes you do by chance almost, but I certainly would never by choice put on one of our old records. I think because I tend to listen to them critically rather than enjoy them. I don't exactly know why, but for me, I... I always rather listen to something else than that I did know well.
1: The Later Years box set contains some incredible stuff. There's the three studio albums, live material, concert films, unreleased rarities, and loads more. But it also includes. A very special concert held in London in 2007 when arranged to pay tribute to the late Sid Barrett.
3: We're going to do Arnold for you.
1: this performance at the Sid Barrett show in 2007, what can you tell me about... about When did the idea first come about to do this? I think I was just asked to take... I think it was all happening. Was it
0: Joe Boyd putting it together or someone? I, I To be honest, I, I can't remember how it came about or... I mean, it was obviously just after Sid's... Shortly after Sid died. He died in 2006, so I, I, I don't actually know, but they asked us to do it, and I thought, why not? And uh, Roger was around, but he refused to take part in that bit. He said he had to get to the airport or something. I don't know. And uh, I love the rehearsal. Uh, we're just in a room, and we haven't done anything. We haven't played for a while, you know, and it's just Nick tapping his sticks on the back of a chair, and me and the guy, Andy, from... Oh, it's, this, it's a nice little video clip.
1: You're clearly having... An absolute ball on stage. Yeah. You can see at yeah. one point, it's, it's just grinning at you. Yeah. It's a really... Mm-hmm. It, it looked like a lot of fun. I guess mm-hmm. it was that much fun. It wasn't
0: an awesome amount of fun, you know? I mean, you know the, the era of Sid being in the, in the Pink Floyd band was like, like something completely different. I mean, it's chalk and cheese, the, the, the different periods. But, uh, you know, Sid was a friend of mine and his talent was exceptional. Quirky original sort of thing and, and sometimes to go able to do a little bit of, of his material.
1: That was enormous fun doing that little tribute show. There's something really nice about watching you all play mm. kind of visually mm. unadorned. Yeah. Nick's just got a little mm. drum kit and there's yeah. no big screens. Yeah. It's just it's just the group. Yeah. And it still works.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Remember when you were young You shone like the sun
4: Shine on you crazy diamond The Later Years Project is not the end of Pink Floyd. Just because you want to contemplate on what's gone before, does not mean to say that something will not come again. And in my view of all these things, particularly in where you have a music world, which is full of emotional infighting, emotional and distraught elements, some good, some bad, that create the work. You never say never. All sorts of things could turn on a sixpence. The Pink Floyd could get back together. They may never play again. They may record something. They may not. Who knows? There's a whole archive there to be pulled from of new material, unreleased material, and material that has got to be written for the future. So, you know, we haven't heard the last of it. This just happens to be a sort of reflection on what's been going on.
1: Can't let you go without asking. What's next? I mean, this is the thing. We've this beautiful box set is is there documenting all this stuff. What else are you up to in your musical? What's on the musical horizons? I, I don't have anything. And I'm not being coy. I haven't started working on something. I mean,
0: I've got loads of material left over from my last album, which is now four years ago. Is it? And one of these days I'll start sitting up at that desk over there and start putting it all together and seeing where I get to, but I don't... I haven't made any sort of plan yet. I mean, I did most of the On an Island album was made in this room, a um, little less of the the follow-up follow one, the Rattle That Lock one, which
1: I did mostly in Brighton. But the desk just behind me mm. that you're looking at right now... Yeah. ..you'll be there at some point, maybe? Yeah. It's all designed
0: to work as a one-man operation,
1: which is the way I
0: in my rather hermit like way tend tend to like to do things. I should try and get out more.
1: And for more information on the new Pink Floyd The Later Years box set, to pre-order it, order it, or find out more about what's inside this epic release, go to pinkfloyd.com now. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith, and I've been Matt Everett. Thanks for listening.